Martin is a story that I, ba I came out of my dreams, I guess, and started with the idea of what would have, if a vampire was alive today, uh, what would his problems be? Nosferatu. In my mind, he's not a vampire, he's just disturbed. Yeah, I'd go along with that, and Romero found a casting gem for this flick right in his hometown. John Amplis was in a, a play here at the Pittsburgh Playhouse, and uh, uh, I saw him in the play, and I said, oh, this guy is perfect, a local guy, still working here uh, as an actor. Like many Romero films, this one was shot on a tight budget. We shot Martin on 16mm and blew it up to 35. I love the separation of the color sequences from the black and white sequences, and I, you know, I think it all turned out for the best. Reside ergo in nomine patris et filius spiritus sancti. Vampire. I know you'd still be up. Cinemax has saved the best for last. Martin is coming up next. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Here is your host, Derek Terry. Welcome back to Astro Radio Z, folks. I hope you're with somebody that you're sure of, because tonight we're going to be talking about George Romero's Vampire movie martin It's unfortunate that it took so long for me to get to Martin. And the reason I get to Martin on Astro Radio Z is because George Romero has passed away. Uh, longtime listeners of my show will know that George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and Martin are the two movies that drove me to want to become a filmmaker and to become a video slash film editor. You can go back to episode 24 uh, listen to me talk about Martin at length on that one. And you could probably go to the Night of the Living Dead exploitation episode and listen to that one and hear even more gushing. So I won't bore you to tears with me being that guy that sits and talks about, oh my God, it means so much to me that he did this and this and this. You already know it. You know that shit. And if you're a new listener, well, go back. This will give you opportunity and an excuse to go listen to some other shit. Go do it. But anyways, I'm very excited to sit and talk about Martin at length, finally giving its proper due here on the show. And because of this, I brought on some of my good friends 
to talk about Martin. Of course, you got Mr. Mark the Movie Man here. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, though I didn't know Martin Lawrence uh, was something way back in 78. Or did I watch the wrong thing? <laughs> I see Gordon like that one. I'm, good, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm ready to talk about this film. So, Have you actually ever seen Martin before? This is my first time viewing Holy it. shit, mm. Mark the Movie Man. Mm. I know. I know. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear this. This is exciting. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to relate to that because Martin's been with me most of my life. I've watched it so many times. <laughs> So many times the fact that I did not revisit it this week for this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's I just know this movie by heart. I've been so busy lately, folks, that week by week, I tell myself, you know what, Derek, it's okay to take a month off. It's okay to take a week off or two weeks off or three weeks off of the podcast, you know? <clears throat> it's just a podcast. And then I have this all scheduled out. And I keep seeing that you guys keep listening to the show. So I'm like, okay, well... Somebody out there is is enjoying this, so I might as well continue on, regardless of the fact that I'm about to pass over. It's so fucking tired. I can keep Barry, keep my eyes open. Play me the smallest little violin you can find possible right now, folks. Next to him, Mr. Mark the Movie Man, I have a longtime friend and contributor to some of my films, Mr. Rich Shell. You may not know him, but you've seen his name on our last film hole in the wall because he did the score for my black and white short. Our song is my blade. Mr. Rich, welcome to Astro Radio Z. Thank you, Derek. First time caller, long time listener. Thanks for having me on the show. Major <laughs> honor here. <laughs> first time anybody's ever said that on my show. First caller I've ever had on the air. Uh, I, I thought it harkened back to old radio. Well, I, you know, there's times where I've, I've wondered if I could actually pull off an old time radio show. I used to do radio back in college where people would call in and there'd be a delay and man, it was awful. I'm now glad nobody recorded that yeah, stuff now, and I'm glad it didn't go to the internet. dating yourself there. What's that? <laughs> you're dating yourself there now. Well, well. I Happy birthday, turn. by the way. Happy oh. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Welcome to the show. And I thank you for coming on. It took I know we, you and I have been talking about getting you on the show for a while now. So I'm glad Martin was the show that brought you on. Yes. And last but not least, you heard this man's sultry tones on our final John <laughs> Waters episode. Mr. Hellbent for Horror himself, Scott Bradley, is back to talk about George Romero's Martin. Scott, thanks for coming back. Uh, thank you so much for having me back on. And this is a, a great uh, movie to be back on for. And yeah, missing George already. So this is great. I got to admit, even though I said I wasn't going to sit and gush, fuck it. I always contradict <laughs> myself left and right on this goddamn show. What? Um, I've been in a, a shot out, Mark, the movie, man. Nobody said for your talk. No, I'm just kidding, Mark. <laughs> I I have become quite I've noticed in the last few episodes, Mark, I've been really aggro with you. What the fuck's up with that? I don't know. I hadn't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be that you've been trying to trigger me with a bunch of nonsense about puppet masters and shit? <laughs> I I just send you the links. I don't put any context or, you know, force you to watch it. Hey, I okay, I'm gonna un- I'm gonna pull back the veil a little bit here, folks. After our ghoul summer episode, Mark's been sending me ghoul movies that we need to do for next year. Mark, the movie man, couldn't get enough of ghoul summer. He's already ready for next year. <laughs> uh, I, I am. I am, but I'm a glutton for punishment. So, 
Yeah, that you are. That you are. But um, I have to round this back, Scott. I have been in a little bit of a funk this last week mm-hmm. after hearing about George Romero passing. Um, not the oh my god, I'm broken down and I can't wake up in the morning kind of funk, but at the same time. To hear somebody who had such an influence on me and who I've followed most of my life uh, pass away, knowing, knowing that he was in pre-production on his next film. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, it's been, you know, I just finished uh, an episode that's going to drop in like a day or two on Romero. And it was one of the longest episodes for me to write. It took like three extra days and what it normally does to write something down. And it was just, it was so hard to, it was kind of like saying goodbye in a weird way. And uh, as you say, he's been part of my life. I'm from Pennsylvania, uh, but I was on the other side of the state. I was East, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm a little older than you. Uh, so I uh, was there when he first broke on Starlog magazine before there was a Fangoria and stuff. And we just followed this guy so to have him go is kind of like an end of an era i'm going to pose this to each and every one of you before we get into martin we'll do a little talking on george romero give him his due a little bit here um i'm going to ask each of you when you think of george romero what is the movie you think of scott oh wow well that it's martin or it's going to be night of living dead Mm-hmm. And those those two just uh, immediately go to me. And as soon as I said that, I'm seeing Creep Show in the back. Of my oh, head, so. of course, it's it's, it's good. It's like a waterfall. It's going to cascade yeah. on down. But I got to agree with you totally. Those are the two movies that hit me. Rich, what about you? I definitely have to say Creep Show is probably one of the most influential movies for me, mainly because of John Harrison's music. Um, but just the the comic booky style of it mm-hmm. was just amazing. And watching Martin makes me realize how much, you know, kind of Dawn of the Dead is kind of almost, he uses a comic book like style as compared to Martin. Um, And then I guess, I don't know, you know, Bruiser was a really interesting entry into his catalog. And I think it it has some parallels to, uh, to Martin. And I'm sure we'll get into that later. Right. I think there's a lot of movies in the latter period of Romero's career that just go completely unsung. I, I really don't know other than okay other than, than Diary of the Dead any of his films after uh Creep Show that I don't like. Most people complain about Survival Dead a hell of a lot. I actually kind of enjoyed that one. I know that's blasphemy to most people but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it way more than Diary of the Dead but that's just my taste. So anyways, mm-hmm. without going on a tangent there, Mark I thought you were going to say Monkey Shines for sure. I actually kind of like Monkey Shines that stupid fucking movie. I actually oh. kind of like that movie. <laughs> I, I I find it enjoyable. I, I I had warm thoughts of it uh, while I was going through all this stuff until I looked at a clip of when he actually bites Ellie and he's swinging from side to side. And, <laughs> holy shit! It's like Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you hear a yakety sax play in the entire. Yeah, movie. it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> well, as you guys know, I love shitty movies and I love shitty dummies even more. So that shit didn't bother me whatsoever. Uh, Mark, the movie man, what's the movie you think of? Uh, it's going to be kind of weird, but actually the crazies. 
That, there's huh? nothing weird about that one. Nope. That one actually comes to mind right next to Dawn of the Dead, in all honesty. I enjoyed, I know it's blasphemy, I enjoyed Dawn more than Night, uh, Night of the Living Dead, in all honesty. I don't um, think that's blasphemy, Mark. No. I think a lot of people would tend to agree with you. Yeah, uh, there was a time for me that Dawn was number one. But uh, what I found is that night is just lean, mean, and doesn't seem to age. It's already aged in a certain way. And it just has so much power. There are times when I watch uh, Dawn now, I go, well, maybe 20 minutes could be lost from this. you know. But uh, uh, not with that feeling with night. So I get it. You know, Dawn's really, uh, that's one of the big movies for me. I saw that in a midnight movie for an entire summer every Every Saturday at an empty mall at midnight. It was so fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, that's uh, to, for for me. Dawn of the Dead is is a really great movie, but I agree with you. Uh, the economy of pace in Night of the Living Dead, how nothing is to waste in that movie. Mm-hmm. It's always forward moving. It never sits still. The moment people sit, something happens. And the plot is constantly moving forward. And there's so much bubbling under the surface of that film from a sociopolitical standpoint and just pure raw filmmaking that I Night of Living Dead. If we're talking just the dead movies, that's my movie. Mm-hmm. I've watched it probably more than just about any other movie ever with the Todd Browning's Dracula coming up a, a close second. But Night Ooh. of Living Dead is just one of those movies. And I know some people that are, you know, died in the wool, Dawn of the Dead dudes that just love that fucking movie. I love it, too. I think it's fun. I love all the cuts of it, including Argento's really strange, hmm. really cut down cut zombie. I like that one. Rich, you've seen that one, right? No, no, I haven't. You've never seen that one. Oh, you should check it out because Goblin does most of the score, obviously. Ah. They amp the Goblin score up in uh, Argento's release. So I think you would dig that one. You should definitely go check that one out. I had Uh, a hard time with Night of the Living Dead when I first saw it because I was probably around 15 and I had already, you know, grown up on The Exorcist and Friday the 13th and Halloween. And you just, you saw all out gore. And then I went back to this. And, you know, as a kid, you're just like, well, yeah, so what? But I think it was uh, 2015 when it was a, the 30th anniversary of the of um, Day of the Dead that we watched. I watched that movie at Cinema Wasteland. And then I really mm. under, I, I understood Romero. I understood and what he really embodies um, kind of maturity in horror movies, that there's way more going on than the blood and the guts and zombies and stuff. So, you know, I'm going now I'm going back to all of his movies and and understanding this whole social interaction and group dynamics and all that. And it's just, it's really great revisiting all these films. And I'm glad that you invited me on here because I probably, I don't know if I would have watched Martin, you know, um, because it's not like his other films. Have you ever seen this? Is this a first time view for you as well? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I love yeah, the rookie. I love introducing this movie to people because it does sit in that period after Night of the Living Dead and before Dawn of the Dead where he made a, a bunch of movies that were 
actually at the time big flops in a couple of them there's always vanilla and season of the witch still are complete flops right <laughs> <laughs> but he also made the crazies and some tv movies in between there and um i think it's a really uh, really interesting period because the crazies to me feels like an updated version of night of the living dead Mm-hmm. More than a new movie. I've always felt that way. I know a lot of people don't feel that way. I'm sure Mark the Movie Man, you probably don't feel that way either. But that's just, I've always felt that way where I felt Martin was such a step forward in the evolution of who George Romero was as a storyteller and as a technician, as a filmmaker, because he also edited all his films. He He is one of those guys that just can do everything in his films have such a personal feel because of this. He took time to write these stories a certain mm-hmm. way, took time to prepare um, shot lists and get coverage and edit them in a very meticulous way that Martin felt like the true follow-up to night of the living dead. And then from Martin, we get dawn of the dead. Mm-hmm. These three movies to me are the pinnacle of, at least just for me, I'm sure other people might think otherwise are the pinnacle of George Romero and um, between night of living dead and dawn of the dead, having this weird quirky movie, Martin sit in the middle. I love it. I, I just, it shocks me every day that people tell me that they've never seen this movie or never heard of it rightfully. So because it's been out of print for a really right. long time. Right. So I'm sure that's why I, I hear the reasoning is because just licensing, they just want too much money to release this movie. Richard Rubenstein wants way too much money uh, to license this out, which it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame because to me, this is my favorite George Romero movie. And um, I would love for more people to see that. And if this episode does anything, I hope it opens people's eyes and makes them go check this movie out because I feel it really deserves its day. I've been very happy to see that on the internet, a lot of the bigger review sites have been covering this movie. I saw Mm -hmm. even red letter media put out a big review of it and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful review. So um, without further ado, folks, we're going to wrap up the the blowjob session on George Romero and let's go ahead and sink (laughs) our quote unquote teeth. I know that's a horrible joke. Oh, man. Horrible pun. Yeah, you everyone can moan. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Into George Romero's Martin. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. You see, people don't understand what's wrong. They think that I'm a monster. They think I'm a vampire. (laughs) 
realize that those things I see in the movies are not real. I don't have a whole lot of women. It's nice to watch them. I watch them a lot all the time. I have to, to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them. I plan. I'm very careful. I have needles now. I can use them. I can put them to sleep. And it doesn't hurt. Martin, another kind of terror. I would like to be like everyone else. I have to do things that I don't necessarily like to do. But I want to stay alive. I do need blood. of Night of the Living Dead. Just as George Romero did for zombies, George Romero does vampires the only way he knows how by breaking the mold and completely tossing away all preconceived notions of what a vampire film should be. George Romero's Martin centers around a young man named Martin, played by John Amplis, who you guys may know from some of George Romero's other films, such as Creepshow, In Dawn of the Dead, In Day of the Dead. But Martin is a young man who appears to be in his early 20s, but claims he's 84 years old and is a vampire. He's going to visit... His cousin, Kuda, who is an elderly man, very staunchly religious elderly man in a very rundown Pennsylvanian coal town or mining town. And Kuda tells him the moment he meets him, Martin, I'm your cousin Kuda and you are a vampire and I'm here to destroy you. (laughs) but everybody around him looks at Martin and says, well, this is just a boy. He's not a vampire. And Martin even tells Kuda, there's no magic. I'm just a guy. He basically doesn't believe in the old vampire ways of mumbo jumbo about garlics and crosses and all this other nonsense on the side, even though he's trying to keep up this facade that he's just a normal dude. uh, Martin is going out and basically hunting women down and taking a razor blade to their arms and drinking their blood while he has sex with them. So this is a very, very strange film. And I'm interested because I know Scott and I could probably go on for a long time, but I want to hear a fresh perspective Mm -hmm. going in as to Mark, what did you think about Martin in the unorthodox way that it goes about telling the vampire story. I always love seeing, if nothing else, seeing someone try something different, do a new spin on a classic, sometimes, uh, for back, lack of a better term, overused shtick. You know, with, like with vampires, there, there was something set up with vampires, and for a long time, you got pretty much the same story. Can't do sunlight, garlic, and it. So... I dug the fact right away that this is a not traditional 
vampire film and comes out as such as trying to remove any and all of the religious connotations that have come with vampire films up until this point. And, you know, I, I dig that. I, I love seeing someone try something new, even if it's not executed well, which I'm not saying this wasn't executed. It was, but I, that, that appeals to me right away. So that pulled me in right away, looking at it going, okay, this is definitely a different approach. And that just carried out throughout the film. And what I liked about it is some films that try to do this end up falling back on some cliches or they um, break their own rules. And in this one, he holds tight to the rules he set up right in the beginning of the film, the way Martin is. And he doesn't break those at all. Everything Martin does in here feels like something that character would be doing. You know, and, and I liked that. I I, I dug it. I, I dug the, the variation, the different tale of it, you know, uh, and in all honesty, and I know it's a bad thing to say, but I'm surprised the way this story is and plays out and the things that it, the topics that come up throughout this film, maybe it is because the licensing is so expensive. It surprises me someone has not tried to remake this. There has been talk through the years. I believe somebody a number of years back actually gained the rights and were trying to remake this. Mm -hmm. And I think it completely, you know, went up in smoke. But um, I've always been somebody who's been shocked that this was never remade. Maybe it's just that obscure that most people just aren't aware of it, which is shocking to me, Um, especially in the advent of a lot of remakes of the last 10 years. I mean, to the point where we're getting remakes of films that aren't even a couple years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let the right one in, cough, cough. But that was that's a whole nother story. Yes. <laughs> that's a whole nother story. But uh, but I I agree with you completely, Mark. I think if we were going to sit and talk about, you know, breaking the mold, we have Martin, who's who thinks he's a vampire. He's had uh, through his family had this idea of him being a vampire pounded into his head since he was a little kid through the ages, through his family. We never quite know whether or not he's really a vampire or if he's just a little mentally unhinged and suggestible as a vampire he obviously one doesn't have any fangs two isn't adverse to um the christian things that uh, typical like dracula is um he has an aversion to like you know the garlic or the the crosses or the holy water or any any of that. He act, there's actually a scene where he he bites into garlic and spits it at Kuda and and puts a a cross right up to his head. So we know right off the bat off the bat that this isn't going to be your normal film. But there are sections of this film where he sits and kind of embraces this romanticism about mm-hmm. vampire lore. Like there's an entire flashback section of this film that's done in black and white done to beautiful you know acapella and uh, yeah. like th- this beautiful uh, uh, sung soundtrack where it's it, it's very dreamlike it's in black and white where it seems like martin's being chased by uh, you know a horde of of people with with like uh flaming torches and he's trying to you know 
find his lover and all this stuff. So you feel, okay, well, is he really old or what is what's going on here? And then there's another aspect of this film where he's calling into a local right. talk radio show and talking to the host about how uh, vampires really are and all the stuff in the movies are bullshit. Um, Scott, what do you think of the variations of what uh, Romero's doing with this uh, character, with the with the vampire lore and how he's setting Martin up in yeah, his world? Yeah, it's excellent uh, that you brought up the 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 phone calls, the radio talk show, because uh, there's so much from the very beginning of this movie, and it's interesting that you really love Todd Browning's Dracula as well, because uh, there are parallels between that and the movie Nosferatu, where uh, the train's coming in. That's kind of like the boat coming in to uh, to the dock with uh, with Dracula on it, and you have uh, Pittsburgh. That's like the big castle that Renfield goes in, and everything. Absolutely falling apart uh and this phone calls are kind of like they can either be the children of the night uh from dracula or what i like to think is this is the modern way of folk story this is how myths become reality and this whole movie is about myths falling apart and you have uh, uh, the myth of America is always going to be great in this steel town falling apart. You have people who have believed in their church uh, the entire time, and uh, they can't get the young priest to believe what they believe. And, uh, and you have uh, all of this myth that's kind of coming apart. And you have Martin, if he is insane, I kind of think that he is a, a mentally ill guy, but I think he truly believes that he is a version of a Nosferatu. And uh, there's this weird thing about the, the relationship that both him and Kuda have. I mean, for him to believe that he's a Nosferatu, if, he, if he's human, he gets to fantasize about a world where he's strong and in control. If he's going to think that he's a Nosferatu, here's this weak-willed guy. The first time that we hear anybody talk about him, like, I hear you're an imbecile. Can you speak? I mean, that's a guy who's <laughs> not going very far. Uh, he's uh, quiet and shy. But in this fantasy world of being an Nosferatu, what this guy's calling him, he gets to be uh, a little bit bigger. But if he is actually a Nosferatu, uh, he thinks that what he does is natural, not supernatural. He just sees himself as this this thing. Hey, I'm 84 years old. Uh, girls really don't dig me. Uh, I don't have to worry about all, all of this other stuff. I'm queasy around sex. There's only one way that I can seem to get it done. Uh, but uh, people, human beings are okay as long as they don't get crazy, but they always get crazy. And he basically is talking about how when you're being hit with something that you're not aware uh, that's not what you're used to. In other words, the new coming in, uh, you tend to rebel against it. So he's kind of the outsider uh, that uh, brings something new in uh, and uh, or old if you're Tatakuda. And he feels that, hey, I'm just a natural thing if I'm a Nosferatu. There's nothing really supernatural. But every time they find out who I am, they start throwing this supernatural stuff all over it. And people just get crazy and I've got to run somewhere else. Uh, so it's interesting Interesting. He can go in multiple uh, directions. And I like what Romero does with this because he uh, is ambiguous about it enough. You know, we know he doesn't have fangs. We know, in fact, what's funny is like Tatakuda does things like has a mirror covered with a, with a, a blanket or something. He pulls it off and goes, aha, and there's the reflection. Right. That doesn't change Tatakuda's mind an, a, a, a bit. It doesn't change his thoughts about this guy at all. Uh, yet, 
there's proof he's not the Nosferatu. Uh, it's it's really interesting that uh, Romero plays it where I, I see it as a modernization. And it's a modernization being done in a place that's not keeping up with being modern at all. You know, you have a place that uh, the struggles of keeping up with a changing world and becoming obsolete, uh, Tarakuda, the church, Pittsburgh itself, uh, the unemployment of everybody, you get the idea that this place is not keeping up with the times. And you have this thing that's happening with uh, with Martin where he's a modernization of old myths. I think that's a, one of the main central themes of Martin is a changing of the guard is is the old religious ways being taken over by secular thought is industrialism mm-hmm. being taken over by the modern age, by technology, by new forms of thought. And both of these two characters are kind of that age old fight where in the like I, I love that you brought up the parallels with Dracula because there are a lot of them. Yeah. In here. And Kuda is definitely Van Helsing <laughs> and Martin is Dracula, but not Dracula in the romanticized way that we've come to know him, but Dracula in the rebellious pseudo-sexual, even though Martin is, as you said, very confused about sexuality. And I think that, for me, gives away the fact that he's not really a vampire, is that he, if for somebody who's 84 years old and he still has <laughs> no idea how to, how to like, approach women whatsoever, right. it tells me <laughs> that he's... <laughs> what 84-year-old what um, makes a reference to intercourse as sexy time? Right. (laughs) One that's been locked in his closet for for a long period of time. (laughs) Um, uh, Rich, what did you think of this Martin character and how Romero took him? I thought I thought it was really interesting what he did with it. Um, You know, if I would have watched this movie out of context and not knowing it was a George Romero flick, I might have just thought it was just another 70s you know, film that had a very 70s feel to it. Like, I don't know, Taxi Driver, Easy Driver, something by Bogdanovich or something. You know, it was mm. some, they had lots of mundane conversations in it. There was, you know, kind of an abrupt ending to it. It was just very, very 70s. And, you know, I, I you know, I thought it was, it was done well, but, you know, compared to some of his other movies, um, you know, not as grandiose, I guess. Um but putting it in context with the rest of his films and when what he really tries to do uh, in getting people to understand interactions between people and you know, you know social values between people, it was just a really interesting film. And I, I have to make a confession. You know, I didn't read any plot summaries before I watched this film. So I went into it full 100% belief thinking that Martin was in fact, you know, a a vampire. So, and then, you know, I read those plots, somebody's after, and I was like, Oh no shit. You know, why why didn't I even think of that (laughs) (laughs) after, you know, during this whole film, all these things were happening and there's no proof that, that he really is a vampire, but it's, it was really strange because I went back and watched some scenes. I watched scenes today and it made me, I mean, it was uneasy to watch from the beginning um, because the violence in it was so 
kind of gritty and real, very unlike, you know, watching Dawn of the Dead, where it's like I said, like it's like a comic book and very over the top and everything. So it was uneasy to watch in the first place. But then going back and going, okay, this guy's not, maybe he's not a vampire. It made me much more kind of disturbed and uh, you know, I honestly, I, I had, <laughs> I have to say, I, I, I had thoughts of, of, of almost Bill Cosby and I'm not talking, you know, Leonard part six, Bill Cosby. It just, it, it, it really kind of those type of things when it comes down to like real violence and real, you know, those types of things really, really disturbed me. And mm-hmm. it was, it, it's still, I'm still thinking about it now you know um, that is one of those things that Romero does so well and I think that's why Martin affects me so much is the craft of how he constructed certain sequences oh, yes. to show character as opposed to propel plot and when I when I talk about this I I'm talking about the ebb and flow of tonality in this film. And as Rich had just uh, made allusion to, the beginning of this film starts with a cat and mouse stalk sequence in which Martin goes on to a train that is leading him to go visit Cuda in Pennsylvania. And he gets on this train and goes into one of the cabins in order to have the quote unquote sexy time <laughs> with one of the the inhabitants and uh this sequence this is the one of the primary reasons i became so infatuated with george romero not not because it, it is a rather dark and disturbing sequence just the 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 violence the nudity the really disturbing kind of fly on the wall stalkerish elements of this mm-hmm. scene. It, they are very disturbing. It's very dark, but the way that this constructed is so meticulous. Ooh, There's yeah. not a frame wasted. And I've made reference to this in past episodes that if you've ever seen the movie that is the documentary for Dawn of the Dead called Document of the Dead, mm-hmm. you have a sequence early on in this film that talks about a script breakdown for the sequence in um, George Romero's technique of editing in pre-production to maximum effect to the point where when he shoots all this coverage, he knows exactly how this movie and this scene is going to play out. And if you haven't seen that, please, by all means, go check it out. I'm going to play a little bit, a little clip of it right here. Pre-production involves writing the screenplay raising the money, and organizing the shoot. These are the opening moments of Martin, a film Romero made just before dawn. As the story unfolds, you'll see the screenplay qualities, all inherently cinematic, which begin to articulate his style. First, the visual imperative. With few exceptions, cinema relies as little as possible on the spoken word. Characterization and plot are best revealed through action and accumulation of detail. Montage concepts begin in the screenplay. The story is developing with literally no dialogue and suspense is being generated not only in the horror of the situation, but in the mystery of the plot itself. 
We still don't know his identity, his motives, or his goal. Romero's use of dual linear movement fleshes out the two dimensions of film into three. A use of such devices as the manipulation of time, or other devices such as irony. As you can see from the final page of the Dawn screenplay, Romero's use of the form is unorthodox. This is, ha, has always been what I point to as the moment my eyes opened up to filmmaking, was this sequence here. There is such an attention to detail, not only to making sure everything works um, an attention level, but conveying character through yes. camera movement and through editing mm -hmm. and sound. It is just a master course. This scene and another stalk and kill sequence later on between a couple in a house where Martin is literally fucking with them over the phone while he slowly is drugging them one by one until he gets what he wants. These two sequences, if you are even mildly interested in the craft of making film, this is a master course in how to put together exciting, tension-filled sequences that at points breathe. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think a lot of things now, a lot of action movies, a lot of horror movies, don't know how to breathe anymore because we think tension is super quick cutting, loud music, and a fast pace. Martin defies all of this it ebbs and flows mark what did you think of these stalk and kill sequences and how they were put together they were downright creepy <laughs> you know uh especially the way this film the way this film opens is with this sequence was was crazy it was it was disturbing it was and it's again one of these things where his lower budget plays to the strengths of it in that because he's working on a limited budget and that everything he does has, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> there's not a lot of extra to where you could just, uh, well, we can do this over or do this scene. So everything is meticulously shot and planned. And when it comes out, yeah, this opening, this opening scene was in, was downright disturbing and it immediately sets you up going, okay, that's Martin, you know? And, and then later on with the, uh, couple in the house that one i mean you, you think his goose is cooked you know <laughs> the way, yeah there's multiple see there's more, multiple moments in that stalk and kill sequence where you're like okay he's fucked they've got him there's no way he's gonna get him and he gets out like a slippery little weasel mm -hmm. and gets his way so uh i agree with you totally on that one yeah you know and that's the thing is in hollywood I think um, the way films are shot nowadays, he would have had more consequences or more things happen to him. But the way George plays this Martin character out, uh, he doesn't. And that makes it even more disturbing in the fact that here's this slippery guy who's doing this pretty freaking creepy stuff, you know, and he's getting away with it. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. you never know. They never, he never shows his hand 
whether he's a legitimate vampire at any point. As Rich said, Rich, and I was the same way when I first saw this way back in the day. I was convinced he was a vampire the whole time. And I think you can walk away from this movie thinking he's a vampire and it's legit and it's valid. I think this is the perfect kind of movie and the way Romero worked on most of his best things is that it lets you walk away with you holding all the cards and you make up your own mind. Yep, about right. this. Yeah, I think that I think that was that was brilliant of of them to leave it like that because like I said you can watch that film in two different ways now and it completely changes your perspective on all the characters. So, you know, is is Kuda some crazy whack job or is he the only one that really knows what's going on? And then, you know, you look at the character Kristen and it's like when I was watching it, I wanted her like, Hey, come on, believe this guy is a vampire, you know? And then I watch it again and it's like, Oh, well, she's the one that's the, the sensible one. You know, she's the one trying to talk him into getting help and yep. uh, you know, that he's seriously, so there's something wrong with him. Well, she also is oppressed herself by Kuda. Yeah. I think that's another big theme that I'd love to explore um, about Martin is how women are treated in this movie. And it's also a time capsule to a time. And I think this perfectly plays into, uh, Scott, what we were talking about before, this changing of the guard and how yeah. at that time we're, we're rolling into feminist thought and women are, are out in the workplace. They're voting finally for the first time, having more power. Um, yet in Martin, regardless of the fact that right. the Christine character has, uh, you know, she's very outspoken and very direct. She's put down by all of the male characters and looked down by by all of the male characters in this film. Scott, with the role of women in Martin, how do you think that plays out? Well, it's uh, really interesting that you uh, you talk about that as well, because uh, one of the things that I, I thought about when I was watching Martin again, and it's not just women, it's familial relationships, an old school, old world familial relationship. Uh, and it can play in both directions between Tatakuda and Martin. When he first meets him, he doesn't hug him. <laughs> it could be because he thinks he's an Osferatu. And Martin has to walk behind him. And I, well, not to say that I'm that old, but uh, back old school first generation uh, immigrants in the East Coast, especially in Pennsylvania where I lived, you had the grandfather who walked and everybody followed. Uh, you had uh, like how in Martin, you hear that there are nine Masferatu in this family line and everybody's given a letter and they have to take in the kid. That's a real deal. It's not a supernatural deal, but that was a real deal of, okay, people who had big families used to give letters and say, if something happens to me, you're going to take my kid. And they used to do that with cars. Someone would get a new car and everybody would pay each other a dollar to get the other car. They'd like sell each other their cars so that the one new car got into the thing. It was very much like a gypsy lifestyle in a way. And the way that the women were treated, uh, it's so funny when you think about how it was so obvious. You would see these old signs of like behind every man is an angry woman or something like that. And she'd have a rolling pin in her hand. Right. Well, that's because they're never listened to. What makes you go nuclear and have to use a rolling pin? Because you can talk all day and your word doesn't mean anything. 
And that's what you see with Christine. She's the voice of either hope or reason. She's hope because she's actually trying to be nice to Martin, but she's also saying that maybe she can uh, something good can come out of this place. She's going to get with this guy, all this stuff. But she's constantly arguing with Tata. Uh, Tata even says that to Martin, you will not talk to her. She's going to talk to you. I'm going to tell her not to, but she's still going to talk to you. So <laughs> she's allowed to say whatever she wants. It's just never going to mean anything. She can say anything she wants to her boyfriend. She can have him say whatever he's going to say. It's not going to mean anything. He's going to do what he wants to do. Todd is going to continue to do what he wants to do. Martin's going to be the same guy that he was as well. So as hope, she leaves, you know, and she leaves in a, a really interesting way. Uh, you find out that Tata, another crazy thing is that uh, telling the, her boyfriend that there's insanity in the family and you better not have any kids with her. That's such an old school fucking thing to hear. And when she rips him and she goes, hey, I'm out of here. And by the way, we're not going to have any kids because he's just a ticket out of here. And uh, Martin says, you know, you know, I, I'm sorry that you're leaving. She goes, oh, well, I'll write and everything. He goes, no, you won't. You, you won't write me. And says something like people always go away to forget where they are. So she's like the future. She's modernization. She's the modern woman, whatever you want to call it. But she's the voice of hope. And this movie says, you know what? This is an old town with old people. People are going to die here. All they're doing is switching the, the chairs around on the deck of the Titanic at this point. Uh, I got to go. And uh, I think it's really interesting to watch this movie now. I don't think I got it when I first saw it. I thought she was just kind of helpful, but a little weak. And now when I watch it, uh, I see someone who is completely oppressed by somebody still mm -hmm having this ability to speak, but what is the point of speaking if no one has to listen to you? Correct. And we're not even bringing up the fact that her boyfriend played by Tom Savini in uh, George Romero and Tom Savini's first collaboration together yep. ever on screen. Yep. Uh, he did, this is the first chance that uh, Tom Savini actually did effects work with George Romero before mm -hmm. Dawn of the Dead, but that Tom Savini's character is a complete and utter piece of shit that not only treats her like garbage, but also abuses her. You're right. And she's still, in order to get away from Tadakuda in this rundown town that's about to just become extinct, she decides to go with him just to leave. Right. I've always thought that was a very interesting thought and the the chance that the woman would have the power of choice to be able to use somebody as she's been used mm -hmm. was an interesting concept especially in film at that time oh yeah I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's done with women in here. Uh, I, I can't help but go back to that first uh, attack sequence, a stalking sequence, because you guys are talking about as full of just how bravura that whole thing is. Uh, and, you know, of course, Romero was an editor uh, and the commercial maker uh, for his own company, The Late Image, before he did this. So he has a, a very good eye and a very good ear for what's happening in a shot. And what I love about that opening sequence is before the actual attack, it's very snap, 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 snap. They're, the edits are very quick. There's a there's almost like a commercial feel to it. Open up a can of Budweiser. Instead, he's opening up a syringe and things. And he gets in there. You have that fantasy sequence. And then everything slows down. 
He slows the editing down completely. And that's that breathing that you talk about. And he allows a woman that all we know about her is that she just took a piss and she's blowing her nose and she's got makeup noxema on her face. That's all we know as a character, right? By the end, we feel horrible for her because he not only lets her scream, we assume she's going to start screaming and that's going to be it. It goes on so long. She actually starts going, you fucking bastard, you fucking freak, right? Rapist mother. You know, she's saying all this stuff getting pushed to the ground. And then she starts to feel that drowsiness hitting her. She's like, what? did you give me? What did you give me? There's all of this interaction. He's just kind of like backpedaling. She's, she's a rage that's going on in this. And he has to wait like a spider to actually let whatever venom actually get his prey to, to, to numb down. So yeah, you she's not a, just a victim. She's not yeah. just a victim. She's a person. Yeah. You feel that. And the wife, uh, when he, uh, in the second fight, that is such a hair raising moment when she goes, I don't know him. And it's like, holy shit, what an awesome uh, play on a, a moment where, you know, Martin, for for those that haven't seen it, I'm sorry if I just did a, a spoiler, but there's a, a great sequence where Martin has staked out this house and he's going after this woman and he's out of town because Kuda will kill him if he kills anybody in town. And he sees that the husband's leaving and he thinks he's going to go in and grab, uh, grab her and she's having an affair. Doink, never thought of it. 84-year-old guy didn't think of that. So he walks in and they have two people having sex. The guy in the bed thinks that's the husband martin's the husband so he's starting to you know give the hey man i didn't know i don't and she's like i don't know who he is and that is a moment that is really frightening her character is really interesting through that whole thing because she's drugged and she's slowly starting to lose concentration mm -hmm. it's funny so one of you guys mentioned uh, about maybe him being a vampire this is the one moment that i buy that he could be a vampire because somebody said slippery. He's impossible to catch. He's in control that whole time, even though they nearly catch him. He's this little guy. Maybe a 16 year old wouldn't do that. Maybe uh, somebody who's been around for 84 years might know exactly how to play the geography of that house to yeah. such a degree that he pushes that guy out the door and locks it so that he can take uh, advantage of the woman. I think that's a really, really amazing, maybe the best edited and most suspenseful action sequence that Romero ever did. It is so meticulous. And I think that you are 100% dead on. That's how I've always felt is that that is the point in the film. It's not all the the flashbacks, the black and white flashbacks that literally pay homage to the romanticized version or, or idea of what a vampire is. It's that sequence where only somebody that had been there before many, many times, and we're not saying at that particular spatial place, right. but in that situation would have such a level head right. that they wouldn't just flip out. And the way that, they build that sequence where slowly but surely he keeps drugging them that each of the two people that he is going to eventually kill as they are getting drugged, they are becoming slower and slower mm -hmm. and he's becoming more and more and more in control. Rich, you were talking about the starkness of the violence in this film. Do you feel he, he went a little too much over the edge or did you feel uh violence wise that this kind of played along the same lines that some of Romero's other films did. Yeah, I mean he didn't 
push the lines of gore, you know, any farther past any of his other films. It's just the context that it was in that yeah. makes you feel it feel really uneasy. And oh my gosh, this could be real. And it, you know, as him saying that, oh, I use. I use the, you know, the injections because I'm trying to be a humane va- vampire. Well, you're, now I think of it the other way as, no, he's just a, a weak homicidal maniac, <laughs> you know, has to use chemicals to, to take over his victims, you know. So it made it much more uneasy for me to watch. But it didn't, I mean, it's by no means, you know, like watching Inside or or antichrist or something like that, that just make you make you feel like you want to take a shower after the film. But it, it, uh, it just, it kind of hits home with, with real violence. So that's that, that those types of things are the ones that really kind of bother me a little bit more. There's the, there's that juxtaposition between the fact that he potentially, I mean, we've been talking and referring to him as a vampire this entire movie, but the way the movie presents him, he's more a stalker serial killer yeah. than he is anything else. And by day, he is the most mild mannered, wimpy, milk toast fly on the wall there ever was. Mark, how do you think this compares to, let's say, let's go down the road about 10 or so, so more years to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? And do you think there's any kind of like relation between those two films with how they portrayed mania and the the viciousness of of man? I think there's a, a influence definitely if you look at uh, Henry and you look at this. Actually, when I was watching this, I was getting feelings of Henry from this from this film, and I would say yeah, you know it. it they may have borrowed or, or, you know, taken that approach with it. I mean, we've seen that before kind of through too. you know, always the, the quiet, it's always the quiet ones, you know, <laughs> and this one is definitely in that category with Martin. And yeah, I, I can definitely see that portrayal. This is, you know, I think one of the earliest portrayals though I've seen that to where it's, you know, the quiet one who is actually the one who's, who is the the most scary in a lot of ways? And you know, I, we we talked about that house scene, and you look at it, and yeah, either he's an experienced serial serial killer or a vampire. In either case, he's phased for maybe thirty, not even thirty seconds, by seeing the man in the bed, and he automatically puts together. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know what I must do. And he acts. He stabs the guy first, knowing the girl betting on the woman being hysterical enough to where he can come back with a new syringe (laughs) and get her or get him twice. You know? Yeah. I, 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 the, the whole, I think this is early and I would say, yeah, Henry was influenced at least by this quite a bit. I, I have always felt uh, a relation between the two films. I've never heard anybody talk about it. But I've always felt there were elements of Martin that kind of danced over into Henry Scott. Have you ever felt that way? That, that's very interesting that you say that because I never thought of it until as soon as you said it, I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, I can see." Uh, uh, you know, the the sister oh, was it the sister or the cousin? I can't remember. In in Henry, the the girl who comes to live with them with us. Uh, it was a cousin. Cousin. 
okay, cousin who's wearing the Chicago uh, shirt, and it's like the reverse of Martin in a way. But there's a seediness. There's a decay that's happening. Both movies were made for nothing. Uh, Martin was made for $80,000, which is a third of what he got for the crazies. Uh, the houses that they're in are like the sound designer's grandmother's house. Right, right. Stuff like that is being used. And you feel the same thing with Henry. They're trapped in that place they're they're trapped in that that dirtiness and you have someone of extremes you know uh, otis tool is the character he's supposed to be in henry uh he's not quite tatakuda uh, but he could maybe be the, the boyfriend that horrible boyfriend uh that tom savini plays but martin being uh, a very quiet person and henry what i think i see uh as similarities is you have the black and white of the vampire moments that are romanticized in, in Martin. In Henry, you have the murders don't happen on screen. Uh, mm-hmm. You come and you find the dead body and you hear the murder happening uh, in a soundscape. So that's kind of the same. There's that stalker moment uh, in the grocery store, I think, or in the parking lot of the grocery store uh, before his first murder, Henry, where he's out standing there and the girl's ready to back out of the the uh, parking space and she stops and looks at him she's got these dark sunglasses on her face is completely emotionless and then she just turns again and next thing you know she's dead that's kind of like when martin is stalking that house and he's going for the uh garage door opener and shit i never thought of it before but now that you're talking about it i can think of uh, multiple things but that sense of rot you get a feeling that where they're living is falling apart. Unemployment is everywhere. No one is going anywhere. The people that you meet in Henry are like the guy that owns all the, the crap at the, at the uh, thrift store or whatever. You don't meet average everyday people. You're meeting people on the, on the margins. And I feel that that's the same thing that you've got in Martin where everything is slowly spiraling down into chaos. It's all going to crumble away. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, there's that sense of an end, a finality to a place as well as to the people. Yeah. And also the two characters, there's, there's an approachability and charm to them, which mm-hmm. allows them to get in with these people that they're potentially going to murder. And that was something, you know, there's a charm to Martin that to the point where uh, one of the main turning points in the film is that he meets a middle-aged divorcee Mm -hmm. that ends up becoming his lover. And he starts thinking that maybe he can change his ways. Right. And as you had referred to earlier, Scott, Kuda specifically tells him at one point in the film, you do not kill anybody in my town because if you do, I will kill you and damn your soul to everlasting or uh, what is it? I no will salvation kill soul and kill you without salvation. Yeah. And so he's very meticulous about what he's doing and how he's doing these uh, murders. And he meets this woman who is, just as depressed as the town is, Mm -hmm. but is at a place that she needs to feel something. And she meets Martin who is kind of this, it's almost like malleable clay that -hmm. she feels she can mold and she can do whatever she wants to with. And he's not going to complain. 
there's one point where she talks to him where he's like, you know, where she's like, you know what? I love having you around because you know what? You don't complain. Mm-hmm. You don't tell me I'm wrong. You s- just look at me and smile back with those big puppy dog eyes. <laughs> Called him her cat at one point. You remind me of my cat. Right. Which is another thing where, th- you know, it's people using people. And this is this point where Martin starts to think that maybe he can actually lead a normal life. Maybe he's finally figured out what love is. But at the same time, he's he obviously has no concept of what, right. of what that what that is. Uh, Rich, what did you think of the relationship between these two people? Well, I thought John Amplis did just a fantastic job of acting without um, without lines. I mean, that scene where they're, mm-hmm. where they're in the car and she's talking the whole time. And they're really, it's almost like they're having dialogue. It's like a conversation is happening just by, well, I'm sure, you know, how Romero directed that scene, but also how he reacts. And he's this, this, this meager guy, but he wants to have sexy time without killing someone. So here's, <laughs> here's, here's the opportunity to do it. And wow, you're right, it, takes, it takes this weird turn. And, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but things kind of change, you know, that, that the home invasion scene with the, with the couple, um, there's some different things that happen um, that wouldn't have happened if he wasn't, if he hadn't started that relationship. So it causes mm-hmm. this major turn and it makes him really think about what he's doing. Uh, again, it goes back to, is he a homicidal maniac or is he a humane vampire? It almost feels like we're going to have a turn where he's no longer going to be this uh, serial killer anymore. And then, folks, there is going to be impossible for us to not discuss the ending of this movie. (laughs) Virtually Mm -hmm. impossible for me to not want to talk about this because it's one of my favorite endings in all of film, maybe my favorite ending in all of film. Um, So if you have not seen Martin, we have done a little spoilery stuff here and there, but this is going to absolutely spoil this movie. So please, if to this point... You've been listening and you haven't seen this movie. Just turn off the episode and come on back and then listen to us discuss the final act of this film because you owe it to yourself to go in fresh and see this because there are few endings that will punch you in the face the way the ending of Martin will. So from this point on out right now, I'll play my boarding house spoiler cue. This is a warning. Thank you. We are going to be talking about the ending, final act of this film. So as Rich had made allusions to, at uh, one, at some point, this middle-aged woman that uh, Martin had been seeing ends up killing herself. And Tatakuda finds out. And we get a hard smash cut to Kuda basically staking Martin's heart in the most plain matter of fact way possible in the movies fucking done. Mark, Mm -hmm. when you saw this, did it just punch you in the fucking gonads or what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if it was a punch in the gonads, but it was definitely like, Oh, (laughs) that just happened. (laughs) It was just like, wow. We, we didn't mince any words or, or mince any, you know, 
any padding or anything. It's like he gets home from the suicide and it's just like, oh, hi, Uncle. And it's like, oh, shit, what the fuck? You know? And he's just pounding it. Yeah, it was, I, I liked it. It definitely, that type of ending, though, really. Uh, for the era that this was made in, it it felt, you know, that was a bit 70s to where, where you get that kind of just suddenly that abrupt ending the, where you're just like, wait, 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 holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> just, like they run out of money or yeah. home or something and it just stops. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's just like that. And you're just like, wow. Okay. I guess it's over now, you know, and you've got the, then you've got the credits afterwards, you know, where, where you got the radio people asking where the count is, you know, with, with Romero sticking, you know, a little bit further running with that idea. I think uh, I forget uh, which one of these fine gentlemen brought it up, but uh, the, the phone or the radio being a new way of telling a story and how people now, you know, he's a legend in the radio, you know, and people are calling into the radio station. Hey, what happened to the count? Who knows? I thought I saw the count the other day. You know, suddenly more right. of these tales have spawned from this legendary, quote unquote, legendary character. And, it, you know, it, he died in the probably the most unceremonious way possible and gets buried out in the back in the tulips. You, you know, you're just like, Holy, <laughs> you, you followed this guy all the way through. And again, the seventies, that's why I love some of the seventies films because they just end shit in ways you did not expect coming, whether or not it's good or bad. And Mm -hmm. today in Hollywood, you kind of know what formula you're going to go with the ending because they don't want to shock audiences or turn their audiences away. And here he doesn't give a day. He's like, nah, you know, you followed Martin all the way through. Guess what? We're just going to stake him right here. You know? And, What's interesting with the Martin character is he almost you feel bad for him for getting right. staked. I well, I did. I, I felt a little <laughs> bad for him, uh, only because you, you do get that question of whether or not he's a vampire. But he did kind of have his own code. I mean, when he busted into that, you know, the 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 couple in the beginning, he was almost judging her. <laughs> you know, right. in a way. You know, and he he was even before he decided the wedding, you know, he decided, oh, this is OK. And he's got the married woman who who commits suicide. You know, he he looks disappointed and you don't know if he's heartbroken because he was actually kind of attached to her or he's sitting there going, damn it, I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things with this character, but you get into his head and you follow him all the way through and then you get this abrupt just you know he's dead and you're just like man and if you go along with the what you guys are talking about with the parallels of you know out with the old in with the new here's a statement saying the old is not going to go out without a fight right (laughs) absolutely i think exactly it yeah that that ending it would never work if romero hadn't lulled you right beforehand Mm-hmm. It literally is another matter of how expertly paced this film is that you get this hard hit with the suicide. And then literally our next cut is, is Martin sleeping, waking up and noticing there is a stake right at his heart and it's about to go through his chest. Rich, what did you think seeing this? Well, it was the same way. I mean, I've seen a lot of seventies flicks, so Yes, it did surprise me, but um, I wasn't 
I wasn't completely flabbergasted because I've seen, I don't know how many films, I think it's uh, Crazy Mary, Dirty Larry or whatever. Yeah, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Vanishing Points and Mm -hmm. Easy Rider. And it's like, I'm surprised they didn't put Martin in a car and then he jumped over something and the car blew up, you know? So, you know, I'd seen that before, but I thought it, I thought it was a great ending. It really took you off guard and right. There wasn't this, this, you know, Van Helsing against Dracula at the end. So um, it's always, it's always good for a surprise at the end. There kind of was a little bit of that. There was a sequence um, before the suicide in which Martin uh, corners Kuda out in the middle of a, like a playground at night and dresses <laughs> up in, in the worst kind of dime store Dracula cape and fake teeth and paints his face all white to scare Kuda, thinking, oh, my God, the vampire has finally materialized only to come crashing down laughing at him and spitting the teeth out at him saying, you know what? You're crazy. You're nuts. None of this is real. But in the end, as Scott and I have discussed and all of us have kind of alluded to, nothing is going to waver Kuda in his beliefs. And uh, Scott and I had talked about this off air this last weekend when we were preparing for this episode, that this, the ending of this film is pretty much a thesis statement of what is going on under the surface of this film. Scott, when we talk about this ending and the fact that the the old guard is never going to go away without a fight, um, what are your thoughts of this ending? Oh, I, I think it's fantastic. And when people are talking about uh, the 70s movies, the one that I thought of was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm-hmm. So you have this whole movie where this card shark is getting away with all this stuff, Warren Beatty. And then there are these three killers that come after him. And in fact, uh, the killers are kind of, I think the the uh, Coen brothers used a little bit of that movie's violence at the end uh, in No Country for Old Men. But you have uh, this guy who's, you know, you're waiting for a big ending and he gets shot in the middle of a blizzard and he dies and you can barely see him. There's like snow falling on him and everything. So you have this tragic end where you have somebody who was going to change things in, you know, this little uh, gold rush town in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And then the old guard says, nah, we're going to send three guys to blow you away. And uh, they end up killing him. And then there's a coda. So you have this shocking ending where this guy dies pathetically and then the end of the movie is this music strumming and Julie Christie smoking uh, hash <laughs> in, a, in a whorehouse and I felt the same kind of sorrow that I felt when I was watching Kuda planting Martin the, there was such a reverence to it the way that he was doing it it may as well have been a religious ritual that he's putting this guy in the ground and he's putting him under the tulips. And we're hearing the whispers of everybody wondering what the hell happened to the count. And it's almost like a mania. It's almost like ghosts that are going around. There is something really, um, really smart about what Romero does there at the end. It's a ghost story that doesn't end. Uh, If there was just that shock end of him getting staked and then it said, George Martin's uh, George Romero's Martin, it probably wouldn't have had the impact. There's that whole almost five minutes of footage 
that's going on underneath the credits of this guy meticulously, cleanly taking a trowel and putting stuff there and then garlic on top. And you're hearing these people talking about their problems and they're wondering where the, where the, where the, the uh, count is. And you just get this, this feeling of sorrow that I think is all the way through this. And yes, I think that it is all about how in the end you have, uh, I think Tata says it, uh, people cannot come to other people's beliefs. He's talking to his, uh, his daughter and she's like, uh, you know, saying this kid has had all this shit happen to him. And you're talking about this book and this book should be burned. It's the, the family book. It's caused nothing but trouble. He goes, I understand it's hard. You're young. People cannot come to each other's uh, other people's beliefs. And how does Tata and the old take care of it? They kill this guy. They end this guy. They tell people to leave. When uh, Tom Savini's saying, I can't get work here, and he's in a bar with Kuda, uh, a really seedy bar where everybody there is over 50 and looks like they've earned their bar stool. And uh, he says, I'm going to get out of here. And Kuda goes, get out of here and take everybody like you too. We stay. And he says, this is an old city for old people with old beliefs. And what happens to you when you land on that and it doesn't want to die easy? Uh, it kills you first. And so there's that whole haunted feeling to that end. There's also that just brought up the fact that we didn't even discuss one of my favorite sequences in the film in which Tadakuda has a, a confrontation in his own home with George Romero, who plays a priest. Oh, Mm-hmm. Who is a, it's a it's another sequence in which Kuda actually out superstitions the priest, right. where the priest isn't as devout a Christian as Kuda is, and that whole idea of the fact that this old guard that believed in very superstitious ways and were very devout in they they didn't believe that what was said in the Bible in these old ways were just stories. They took them right. as fact where Romero is the priest character is starting to turn around as a more secular um, kind of priest who intro, who recognizes that these are moral tales above right. and beyond anything else. And that is also the kind of idea that's going on with Martin and Kuda at the same time is that, yes, I'm a person that recognizes that this may be what I am, but mm-hmm. I am I do not believe all of this stuff where Kuda, he comes from a time where you believe this stuff or there are dire consequences. Right. And you're making me geek out here because one of the things that I think is so great about this movie and you being a million time watcher yourself is how smart it is to have this urban decay idea and all of this happening in a vampire story where vampire stories, you know, it was always about the, 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 the crumbling aristocracy is basically what Dracula's first idea was, you know, that Bram Stoker was talking about. And here it's all about gothic romance. You know, you can have an urban gothic romance. This is uh, the people of Pittsburgh at that point. They have a romance of the past. They're pining for the old faith. They're pining for the old jobs. They're pining, uh, pining for the old meat market down the street. 
and you have uh, Martin pining for a time that may only be in his mind as well. Maybe he is 84 years old. He wishes he was back at his old castle. But that whole idea of gothic romance, people think of gothic romance as like romance novels, but gothic romance is tragic. Gothic romance is about the death of things. And so him putting that into an urban landscape and talking about what was happening with people at that time and and then dovetailing it into a a vampire story, that's the stuff that makes me go crazy for Romero. It's that kind of thing that I think makes his violence a little bit more violent when we talk about the length of the, the fight and everything that's in here and you feel a little queasy from it. He does that form of intellectual reality so well. Yeah, that was. I think that's a big reason why Night of the Living Dead is so resonant. Mm-hmm. Is that there is that moment where obviously this is fantasy, but there are points in which Romero keeps his camera focus clearly on things that movies at that time would shy away from. Right. And it's the same thing here. And that's when Mark had made reference and and Rich had made reference to the uncomfortableness of the violence in this Mm -hmm. is because Romero realizes the form of the old, but also the reality of what world they were living in at that time, which was, you know, the advent of we're seeing Vietnam Mm -hmm. in full color reality on the news so people's tolerance for violence was far beyond what they were seeing in the multiplex so here we are night of living dead especially very much a vietnam film and a, a film that talked about that era martin kind of pushes that forward even more knowing that we at some points we can't have our hands held anymore and just talk about fantasy. This is reality, and this is what actually would happen. And uh, that's what works so well for me about the violence in this movie. And that ending is the epitome of it. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And I got to tell you, you guys that just saw it for the first time, you, you made me giddy over here, hearing you both talk about, man, that violence was kind of, I mean, it's just a bulb with red paint behind a razor, and he made it work so fucking good. And that just made me really happy to hear, because we've seen, I don't know how much carnage if you're a good horror watcher, but right. that still gets you creeped out. And that's the artistry of what was going on here. And that's setting the stage. That doesn't really work as well if the stage isn't set. Yeah, correct. And it was so much more real because, you know, it was, you know, like the first scene was so clumsy and, mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't stick her. And, and that's how it would happen in real life. And you're just watching it going, oh, God, yeah, that's that's really what it would look like. And and that's that's really what make, would make me uneasy about those types of things. Yep. It's sloppy. It's it's not glamorized. None of the violence in this film is glamorized, even though there were extended sequences like that first scene where he's, um, you know, he's stalking and he ends up sticking this woman and she's getting sleepy. He slows it down. The pace slows down. Mm -hmm. to It almost feels like, you know, this is going to be a romantic sex sequence. 
Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not. <laughs> <laughs> right. You do get a money shot. <laughs> and not the one you think you're going to get. Right. <laughs> so, Derek, Mark. Yes. I have to ask uh, before I walk away from this podcast, what did you think about the score for this film? Because this was done by Donald Rubenstein, who did the unforgettable theme from Tales from the Dark Side and a bunch of other stuff, you know, brother of Richard Rubenstein. And I thought it was I thought it was a quite a different approach because, you know, usually a composer will use one type of instrument or one type of sound throughout the movie. And there was a lot of different things going on in this i mean he had orchestral kind of cello stuff with operatic voices and then he'd have violins and then it'd be like a high octave piano line you know a la john carpenter halloween and then there was that like a moog or something was playing it was i think it was like a wurlitzer electric piano with just super heavy phaser effect or chorus effect on it that was just really watery sounding mm-hmm. so so what what were your thoughts going through that movie. I think it is also another, and we're going to keep saying this is another indication of Romero recognizing the duality of what he's telling in this story is that you have this music that's also playing, which is slightly modern mixed with very classical. And it just fits this movie so well in the, I always love that. And when you're making reference to, you know, that kind of Wurlitzer sound almost sounds like a Leslie it's going through and almost like a Moog kind of, I love when I hear that kind of stuff. One, not only because it reminds me of this movie, but also reminds me of basket case. (laughs) Cause there's a lot of that kind of (laughs) same kind of synthesizer type work in there. And I love hearing that kind of stuff. And it just gives it such character. There's such attention to character in this film. It's not just the performances, which um, I've heard people say that that's the weak part of this movie. Well, these are a lot of non-actors that were asked to to carry films. Uh, John Amplis was a theater actor for many, many years. So his performance is masterful, but it is being a technician of filmmaking that this is a master course in low budget filmmaking because from uh, the framing of shots, the sequencing of this edit, the pace, the score, it tells a story through very little dialogue and you stay, you fully know what's going on. I mean, there's maybe some ambiguity as to whether or not he's a vampire or what time it is or that kind of thing. But that's more of a thematic ambiguity. But the tonality of the film, you follow it completely. And it's because of the meticulous nature of how it's put together. And that score to me is once you hear that um, operatic singing voice, that goes to those black and white sections of the film, which is another indication, a metaphor for the old guard and the new guard. The yep. color mm-hmm. signifies the reality of now, while color, while the black and white sequences uh, harkens back to the romanticized idea of Todd Browning's Dracula. Just it, it's haunting, and it sticks with you. Rich, what do you think of that stuff? Yeah, I agree. Well, it went along with the film and staying really slow and somber and even, you know, just depressing at times. 
And I, I agree. It was the, the complete comparison of the old, you know, orchestral and opera voices and what you would expect to hear in a vampire film versus what was new at that time is, you know, using electric pianos and effects. And there was even some like metallic sounds. I think they were using um, like playing saws and those types of thing. Um, so it was this, this whole mishmash of different types of music, which is not usually the style that a composer will, will choose, but it fit really well with this movie in, in the comparison of the old and the new. Yeah, it gives that idea that at least at that time, an independent filmmaker was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do and could mm-hmm. experiment and really push his craft. And this is a film that has a lot of character to it. And I think out of the vast majority of the films, George Romero has come out and has always said that this was his favorite film yeah. out of all of the movies he made now there were supposedly is this mythological two hour and 45 minute cut of Martin. But uh, to this day, there's no proof that it exists Um, in the European cut of this film actually has goblin on it. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. I heard they recycled a bunch of, you know, older goblin music or or music that wasn't used. They right. used sound cues, like car cues from Suspiria. So it's really disjointed. See, I, I would not want to hear that. Yeah, I would don't. not want to hear that at all, even though Goblin works well with uh, Dawn, uh, yeah, Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I really don't think they would work well with this movie because there is a very singular voice to Goblin. Mm-hmm. That it worked well for Dario Argento and the hyper stylized kinetic nature of those films. That George Romero's more methodical, slower character based films just didn't jive with. There were moments that's why, you know, I like the we had kind of talked about, you know, the various cuts of Dawn of the Dead and the European cut. Goblin sort of worked there. Sort of in the stuff that Romero used of Goblin in Dawn of the Dead was much was the vast majority of the more understated things that they made for Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the the more, you know, prog uh, funk type stuff, right. like jazz fusion type stuff that they were known for. Yeah. Um, it was much more uh, pretty traditional because all of Night of the Living Dead is all stock music. Mm-hmm. It's it's all it's all this royalty free stuff that he found laying around and he made it work. It's iconic. Like I can't even I've heard rescores of Night of the Living Dead and it doesn't work for me. I need that shitty stock score. Yeah. There's just Okay, well you got me there on that. <laughs> You got me there on that. But yeah, the score is very, I think everything about this movie, I could go on and on and on about it. I just, I adore this movie. I never, and I made reference to this in episode 24 that I don't like being a person. And I traditionally shy away from uh, saying that I have a favorite film because I think as a film uh, viewer, uh, if you're, your tastes aren't changing as you age and as you experience new things, I think you're getting stuck and you aren't evolving as a person and as a film viewer. But if there's anything that I would even remotely come close to saying is, yeah, this is the one film that's probably my favorite film. It would 
it would be Martin. It just from uh, it just inspires me every time I watch it. Every time I, I talk about it, obviously you guys can hear. I'm I, I I love this movie. I'm very passionate about this movie. There's so much to talk about with this movie. So I think you know we've we've gone on long enough. We could probably go on for another hour about Martin, but let's go down the line and let's just give our final thoughts and whether or not we end up walking away really digging Martin. Obviously, you know. I just told you this is one of my favorite movies of all time might be my favorite movie of all time. Mark the movie man. What are your final thoughts? And uh, did you end up coming out liking this one? Martin is a great exploration. And as you've mentioned before, and, and everybody here has mentioned before in the art of low budget filmmaking, it, it, this shows exactly what you can do. If, if you take a little care and, and pre-production, everything George, Romero did for this film uh it, it shines in this film and Martin what I love about Martin is Martin is used for George Romero to peel back the layer and, and try to eliminate any of those thoughts of the American dream or whatnot anymore and try to show you through Martin at least my takeaway from this a bit the the harsh realities of today that people like especially the older folks may be trying to ignore or overlook every couple in this film has an issue either the married lady who her husband's running around or the girlfriend you know his cousin who has a boyfriend who's abusive. Uh, every couple he sees has a problem, but not just that, you know, he busts in on a victim who's cheating on her husband. In this movie, all the couples have issues like major issues. There's no romance there between the couples, uh, except a little bit between him and the married woman. But even then her intentions aren't great, but also you get that scene with the uh, cops when he's being chased mm -hmm. and he just, just like he happened upon the woman cheating on her husband, he happens upon just randomly a drug deal, which <laughs> ends up the cops ignore him completely and go after the drug dealers and everyone dies in that battle. And he gets away. He, he slithers away again, but it shows you that, 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 true crime that is going on in that day and age. He's mm -hmm. showing the problems couples are having in that day and age to where it's not, you know, father knows best anymore. It's not, these are the clean streets. It's not our economy is doing okay. You know, he's through Martin. He's showing some of the harsh realities of that time by, by using this character who he stumbles upon a lot of things and who has his own issues. And do you come out of this film, whether or not he is a vampire or not? That's not the point of the film. You can play it either way and you'll be right with what's presented, but there's a lot going on in Martin and you should watch it. I, I loved this film. 
for what it did for for how uh, tight this film actually is uh, for for many reasons. There's a lot of things that you could still explore and you could take away from this film and you wouldn't be wrong. There's some films where you walk away and people will say, well, you're just you're wrong. That's that's not what he was going for. And even the director. But here he doesn't. He lets you decide what you're going to get out of this film. He, he's not p- forcing you, but he is presenting ideas to you. You may not have thought of or trying to pull back that veil and, and bring some reality to you that you may be trying to ignore. Mm-hmm. So, but that's, that's my rambling take on it. Um. <laughs> I'm so happy you love this movie, Mark. <laughs> I, I knew you would. I knew you would, but that just makes me extremely happy. Rich, your final thoughts and did you end up liking this thing? I, I did. Um, you know, like I said, originally I watched it as like a 70s flick and I was like, okay, it's another 70s flick. But it it really, honestly, in the past two days has grown on me and made me realize, you know, kind of the brilliance of Romero and that he could do something like this on a sophomoric attempt, you know, uh, that he only had done a, a few movies before this, that he can develop this character so well without him even having that many lines and tell this story and, and, and incite all these different feelings in, in the viewer is just, it's amazing to me. And it also, like I said, I thank you for, because it inspires me to go back and really rewatch and watch his entire catalog and really, I mean, understand how this guy, how Romero thinks and, um, it was great to see that he doesn't need zombies and he doesn't need group dynamics. And, you know, he's not just a one, a one trick pony. Um, and I think, I mean, I think Romero, you know, we talked about, let's not gush all, all about Romero a lot, but I mean, you know, in 400 years, no one is going to remember who George Romero is. Um, no one's even going to remember who Abraham Lincoln is in 400 years, but he, I think he is affected so many filmmakers that no matter what there is in the future, you know, if films are going to be inside of our brains or whatever, he has still affected how people tell those stories and, and, and what they show in those stories. It's just, it's amazing to me, you know, people won't remember who he is, but they will still be affected by this man. So yeah, I definitely thumbs up on this one. Yeah, that's awesome. I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. Scott, let's round this out. Yeah, I'm going to gush about him. Hell with that. (laughs) Go for it. But but yeah, uh, what I get out of Martin, I I absolutely love the film. And I will say, first time I saw it, saw it in the old big box VHS. Uh, It was just out. And the only way that I knew about it was an old black and white picture in Starlog magazine when they were doing a thing on Dawn of the Dead when that was first coming out. And they just had this one picture. And it was him uh, drinking out of the wrist of the woman. And I was like, I got to see this someday. When I saw it then, I wasn't ready for what I got. Yet, what I think I love so much about Romero and why I think this is a a very strong entry into Romero's stuff, what makes him so good, is that it is an incredibly simple story, but he can tell it as complex as he wants to. So you can have a very simple story. Is it a modern vampire? Is it a kid thinks he's a vampire? He can pitch it like that. And you can see it on that level. But he has onion skins to all of his concepts and ideas. And what I loved about Romero so much was that he 
Uh, towards the end, his subtext kind of creeped up into the text. He got a little angry. But when he was on, he would keep that subtext below. And you could get a, an entirely different movie if you started to read why you felt the way that you did. And what I think is interesting about Martin is that this is a movie that you feel as much as you watch. And by the end, you wonder why you feel sad or you wonder why that end impacted you so much. And it's really because of the journey that Romero gives you. It's a very personal journey. Uh, this is a movie that I think is the cheapest he ever made. You know, he had three flops in a row and his budget just went bam, bam, bam. Every set, there are no sets. Everything is an actual practical location that they shot in. And that brings a reality. And I think it brought a little bit of the reality of what he wanted this story to be. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, there is no magic. And one of you guys talked about how it's like, yeah, he pulls the covers on everything. When he's saying there is no magic, he's saying there is no myth. You know, there is no fairy tale. There is no happy ending. This is where we are. Romero always said that we are the living dead. What's the living dead? The de living dead are us. The living dead are in that terrible dive bar that's in this movie. The living dead are the bikers across the street in that abandoned lot next to the broken down building. The living dead is Kuda and the women who come into his place to kind of flirt with him every day. The living dead is the priest who's telling everybody inside of the half burnt down church, I know you got stuff that you can sell at home because we really need to fix this church. Don't bring new people. Just give us what you got. Everybody is just devout themselves as this spiral is happening. And you get that feeling in the gut by these little moments that happen through a horror film that only has, uh, what is it, five deaths outside of the, the drug deal, which I realized this time watching it was, uh, that's where James Cameron got that opening for the Terminator, damn it. <laughs> but uh, uh, you've got this whole feeling of this uh, pining for that old ways. The old ways are gone. Romero is a realist. Romero isn't uh, as much of a cynic, but he is a realist. He's saying, this is where we are. And what are we going to do about this? And to take that kind of story and just tell that without the horror, it could be boring as toast. But you put it in with a horror film and all of a sudden everything's metaphor. And that's why I think Romero's work is so great. And that's why I think Martin holds up so much. As I get older, it gets better. And I find that it's terribly dated in wallpaper and haircuts and what pants people are wearing. Right. But the story is not. And I think that's the same with Night. Those are the two that don't. I mean, Dawn I loved, but malls aren't scary anymore. In fact, malls are gone. Everything's online. So it's dated. But Night farmhouses and the idea of something coming after you and you're too busy arguing to even realize more of them are coming on the on the porch till it's too late that's relevant and martin the idea of the old and the new fighting and a wounded lion the old ways the wounded lion is dangerous and that is just as relevant today as it was back in 1975 76 70 i think i think it was shot in 76 and didn't come out till 77 i'm not sure i've always gotten weird dates on on martin 
I've always heard that but, this was a movie that he shot with a bunch of short ends um, just right before Dawn were, was to come out. This was the first collaboration he had uh, with Rubenstein uh, to kind of see, you know, where he because he wanted to make a movie with him and he wanted to get him back into the creative juices to finally have a hit on yeah. his hands. Man, you know, because after the last three movies that were total yeah. duds, and we're talking about the crazies is in that that group, I know. Um, that you know, this was the movie that they were hoping would finally bring him back to the Night of Living Dead fame. Yeah, it's an amazing film. It's not for everybody, right? I mean, it's not Night of the Living Dead. There's gonna be a lot of people who won't see uh, a lot in there, but I think they might come back to it again. Yeah, you know, I think it has uh, a quality to it. There are some things that you you watch and you go, I don't know if I like that. And you can't stop thinking about it for a weekend. And then you have to come back to it again. And I think that's something that Martin has that uh, some people that may not like it may find that if they go back to it, they'll see something really, really amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree. More, <laughs> if I possibly tried. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm so glad and happy that you guys agreed to come on and do this show with me in the course of doing this show. This has put a, a huge smile on my face because um, Martin means a lot to me. It's one of those movies that just every time I watch it, it resonates so hard with me. And I, I love the fact that you said that it's a movie you feel more than mm -hmm. anything else because it is so melancholy. Yeah. The entire thing. And then when that end hits you, it's almost like you just got staked in the heart. You, you know how how women uh, stereotypically love uh, romantic comedies and dramas mm -hmm. because it makes <laughs> them cry and gives them right? a quote unquote feels. That's Martin for me. <laughs> this is this is that movie that just it makes me feel. And in in horror. I think all good horror makes you feel something. It makes mm -hmm, you indeed. move. It moves you in some way where a, a lot of people like horror to just laugh or like get a quick shock or um, just see some monsters. I have always gravitated towards movies that make me feel something And Martin. It does so in a way that probably no other film does. So very glad that you guys decided to come on and um, very happy that we finally did this episode. So um, thank you guys for listening. As you all know, this is the portion of the show where my guests shamelessly shill the fuck out of you. And here we go. Mr. Mark, the movie man, shill your ass off. You can find uh, most of my stuff at specialmarkproductions.com. Uh, that's where I have the archive to the podcast I do, the spoiler room, as well as links to my latest uh, video reviews. And yeah, check it out. I'm always kind of adapting and changing things up. Uh, maybe putting a link up there soon for all the short little things that I've done besides movie reviews. You can also follow me on the uh, Twitters at specialmarkpro. Mr. Rich Shell, shill your ass off, my fine friend. <laughs> you know what? I'm just the man on the street today here, so I'm just the guy that watches movies. All right. Rich is a guy that watches movies. He also puts together some great backyard barbecue uh, movie <laughs> fests that I've been to that I've been drunk at a few times. 
they've been fun. So thank you for coming on, Rich. Hey, thank thank you, Derek. And thank I think you, I hope Mark. you come on again. Hopefully, I'll be able to make it down to Milwaukee, and we'll finally do that episode with Eric, where we'll we'll sit and watch some really shitty ass movie. Yep. Yeah, we can go through his I don't know three thousand movie collection or whatever it is. Love it all on VHS. Correct and beta <laughs> and beta. Oh, right. He has a beta machine. Yes. Oh wow. shit! Oh shit! We're gonna make this happen. I'm gonna fuck. I'm gonna get him on the horn right away. So last but not least, Scott. Go for it, show. All right. Uh, shill away. My favorite thing to do. So I do have a podcast. It's known as Hellbent for Horror. And Hellbent for Horror is a podcast about everything related to horror. It's where I talk about horror as art and social commentary. I talk about movies and books and stories that shape me and all of how those things shape horror as a film style and an art form. And uh, you can find that. You can subscribe to it. Uh, the podcast that is uh, on iTunes and Google Play, Player FM, Stitcher, uh, Hellbent for Horror. There's a page for it on Facebook, Hellbent for Har. Uh, Twitter, I'm Hellbent Har. Uh, for some reason, they just couldn't give me that for. Uh, Hellbentforhar.com is also uh, the actual web page that I have. There's blog entry, uh, entries in there. I will be having uh, a George Romero uh, episode. It'll probably drop on the 25th of the 26th, July 25th of 26th. It's called uh, My Rides Here, Remembering George Romero. Folks, Thank you for listening. Next week, we're going to go back to the shot on video horror well with Eric Stanze's scrapbook. The movie man and Scott Davis are coming on for what may be one of the first indications of underground chair horror. (laughs) So prepare yourselves because scrapbook. I know, Mark, you have you seen scrapbook before? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh boy, you're in for a real doozy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Real doozy with scrapbook. Ghoul Summer comes back hardcore next week with scrapbook. Um, and then in August, we're gonna do uh what's going to become an ongoing thing here at Astro Radio Z. August is going to be Director's Month, where we're going to be highlighting a bunch of low-budget exploitation filmmakers and giving one movie per episode so prepare yourselves there's a whole lot of exploitation coming at you here on astro radio z so until next time hide your razors Then find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, YouTube, and anywhere podcasts are found. Please, help us by subscribing, rating the show, and giving us a review. It helps us get the show out to more listeners. Also, If you would like to hear more of the show and be a more active participant, join the Astro Radio Z Facebook group and page, and join the Patreon. For only one dollar a month, you get bonus episodes. Thank you for listening. See you next week, Astro Zombies. (laughs)